Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to that Old Testament book of, we're in 2 Kings in chapter 17, 2 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to look at the second part of this chapter. So if you have a Bible, find your place there, 2 Kings 17, exclusive worship. C.S. Lewis who most of you probably know, who was a professor at Oxford, great Christian apologist and writer of maybe last century. Before he came to Christ, he said this in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. He was remembering. He said that one of the greatest obstacles in coming to believe in the God of the Bible was that when he read the Psalms, the constant demand for God to praise him seemed to him to picture God as craving, quote, for our worship like a, woman, like a vain woman who wants compliments, end quote. <laughs> ever struggle, ever wrestle with that? The constant demand of God for praise, for worship, for exclusive worship, nonetheless. Is God an egotist? Is he, in the words of Richard Dawkins, in the famous atheist, in his book, God Delusion, he called God, the God of the scriptures, a megalomaniac? Have you ever wrestled with that? God's demand for worship, God's demand for praise, God's pursuit of his own glory. Well, just hang on to that, because in some ways that's what our chapter is about, this section. And we'll come back to that and seek to answer that in a little bit. But we're here. I want you to come to chapter 17 of 2 Kings. We're going to look at the second part because this is one of the key chapters in the book of Kings as it records the destruction and exile of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom Israel, 722 B.C. by the Assyrian Empire. So this is one of those major events, major dates if you're trying to learn your Bible and kind of the history of Israel, this is one of those major ones you would put on the, on the outline there. You know, there's big events that happen in Israel's history, like, like the Exodus, right? Coming out of the Exodus and the conquest of the land of Canaan and the first king and the building of the temple. Well, this is one of those events. The nation of Israel is removed. That's what this chapter is about. And yet it comes in two parts. Let me just give you a, just a really quick outline of chapter 17. If you like outlines, like I do, I live on outlines, um, think in outlines. If you don't, just bear with me here. Just really quick, here's the two parts of chapter 17. A, this is what we saw last Sunday, if you were here with us last Sunday, the deportation of Israel. That's what the first half of this chapter is about. That's what I just said. Israel is exiled by Assyria to those regions of Assyria, scattered all about. They're no more a nation. No longer a nation. It's really remarkable. And that first part comes in two parts. <laughs> One, the account. We saw that. The account just tells us the bare account of what happened. What happened? Almost no detail. Just gives the bare facts. Doesn't stretch it out. Doesn't give us all the gory details. The main thing is Israel no longer exists as a nation. They have been exiled to Assyria. Then the second piece of that first part is the reflection the author's reflection, that's the major part, why it happened, his evaluation. So not so much on what happened, but why it happened, and that's the main message of that first part of the chapter. 
Do you remember why it happened? It was the Lord's judgment for a covenant forsaking idolatry. It wasn't just political happenings and military strength behind the politics and behind the military is God's action. God's judgment. God is working because of their idolatry, because they have forsaken him. They have not given him exclusive worship. But for these 209 years have been engaged in all kinds, all sorts of idolatry. That's what that was about. We saw all that last week. Now, that's a good place for the chapter to end. The author could have ended there and just continue on. Israel's gone, and now we're going to look at the southern kingdom of Judah and see what happens. But before he does that, he gives a second part to this chapter. It's most fascinating. Here's the second part, B, the importation of the nations. The importation. So you have the deportation of Israel out of the land, and then you have importing of other nations, other peoples into the land of Canaan. That great Assyrian empire that we have seen in the past, part of their policy of conquest, it's really kind of brilliant as far as militarily, if you're going to conquer people, part of their conquest, they didn't just subjugate people, but they took them exile. We saw with Israel, they took them off the land. That was all important in the theology of the Bible. They were removed from the land, but then they also took other deported people and imported them into the land. So they mixed up the people. So they continue to be productive in the land, part of their empire. The land wouldn't just sit follow, and yet they couldn't reorganize to form a rebellion. And this is exactly what happens in the land of Israel. And once again, the author in this second half of 2 Kings 17 first gives the account. So the first part of it is the account. He's just going to tell what happens and how they repopulate the land, how they import these peoples. And then he will give the reflection. His evaluation of what happened, the evaluation of these peoples. Now, I give you that outline like that so you can see the symmetry of it. It's very intentional. The author includes the second part, which intentionally parallels the first part, to complete the theological message of this chapter. These two things go together. We had to separate them because of time, but you're supposed to read them together because they communicate kind of this central theological message that we will see. So let's read the second half of chapter 17. I will put this on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can look there. If you have a Bible, just follow along as I read, starting in verse 24. Let's see the account of what happens in this importation of the nation. Verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria. Samaria is just the name for Israel. In the place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. And it came about at the beginning of their living there that they did not fear Yahweh. Therefore, the Lord or Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, the nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he sent lions among them, and behold, they killed them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel. 
and taught them how they should fear Yahweh. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria or Israel had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. And the men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashimah, the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, the Sepharites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech the gods of Sepharim. They also feared Yahweh and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared Yahweh and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from whom they had been carried away into exile. So stop there. Just pause there. That's the account of this importation of nations. This was their practice. Now, just so you kind of see what's going on, here's that map. I used last week of Assyria. This is that great empire of Assyria. They're, as I said, the superpower of the day, right? They dominate here. They have subjugated Israel and they have taken them captive. The little arrow there is where Israel is, the promised land, God's land. That's the land of Canaan. Israel has been removed and scattered about through this Assyrian empire. And then we're told, give all these place names. So here's a few more arrows on the map. We know a few of these places. We don't know all of exactly their locations, but we know Babylon down to the south, one of these regions that Assyria conquered. Remember, Babylon and Assyria are different places, but Assyria rules over Babylon at this time. Kuthath is just north there of Babylon. So they're bringing peoples from way, way east and bringing them over. And then we're told Hamath, we know that's north of Damascus. So we know this is some of the places these people are coming with all their traditions and coming to the land to be resettled in the land of Israel. So that's what's going on. And the author just gives us the account. Now, what are we supposed to think of that? What are we supposed to understand? How, how are we supposed to understand this, what they're doing? How does God view this? Lions killing them and then seemingly appeasing Yahweh. And so they're worshiping all their, I mean, it's like a, right, a fair of all the different kinds of religions. Just take your pick. Everybody's got their own little God right there. And Yahweh's there too. They fear God. How are we supposed to think of it? God pleased with that? No more lions seem to work. Well, now listen to the author's evaluation. That's why we need the second part. He just gives the account without much comment. And now the evaluation, verse 34. So I'll just finish out the text. To this day, they do according to the earlier customs. Now that they are the, the peoples, these nations in the land of Canaan. To this day, they do according to the earlier customs. Now, remember, the author is writing probably 150 to 160 years after these events, right? So he's, he's in exile. He's writing these events, and he's saying they're still doing, 150 plus years later, they're still doing what they did when they first entered. But notice what he says. They do not fear Yahweh. Nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which Yahweh commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom Yahweh made a covenant and commanded them, saying, you shall not fear other gods, nor shall you bow yourselves down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. 
But Yahweh, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear. To him you shall bow yourselves down and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances of the law and the commandment which he wrote to you or for you, you shall observe to do forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But Yahweh your God, you shall fear. He will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. However, they did not listen, but they did according to their earlier custom. So while these nations feared Yahweh, they also served their idols, their children likewise, their grandchildren, as their fathers did, as they do to this day. What's the point of this chapter? Why, why does he include this account? I wrestled with that for a long time. What's it here for? Why does he include this account of the nations? My heading here is Israel-like nations. Israel-like nations. Here's the main point of the chapter, I think. This is what I think it is. The nations resemble Israel in the land of Canaan. There's no distinction. The nations, these nations from all these different places, look just like Israel in the land, the promised land of Canaan. If you, if you want to, 150 years later, if you want to remember, what was Israel like before they were taken into captivity? Well, just look at the nations now. Just look at it now. This is exactly what they're like. So they resemble Israel. This is, I think, what the author is trying to get. Now, when these nations enter into Israel's land. Remember, this is Yahweh's land. This is not any land that they are entering. It's the promised land. It's the land of Canaan. It brings them, when they enter, into identification with Israel. And in some way, these nations take up Israel's covenant life. Now, they're not God's covenant promised people, but by entering the land, they take up, in some sense, Israel's covenant life because they are in the promised land. As I said, this is not any land they are in. Now, you get a sense of that right away when it says they didn't fear Yahweh and he sent lions to kill them. You remember lions? Now, if you've been with us in the book of Kings and all the strange stories we've seen, that should jog your memory. I remember lions. You remember back in first Kings. Exactly. God's done this two other times to prophets what one author called covenant lions. That is, they are special lions that are agents of God's covenant, agents of God's judgment. And he did that earlier, that funny story in 1 Kings 13 about that prophet and that lion that killed the disobedient prophet but didn't touch the donkey. Do you remember that story? It's a very fascinating story. And then another prophet that was disobedient, lions killed. So these are signals of God's covenant judgment. He's infected on the nations because they're in the land. By the way, there were lions at that time in Israel. Asiatic lions exist they don't today, but they did. We see that all through the Bible. So they're agents of God's judgment. The nations, these nations are accountable. There's a priest from Israel there. Now, we don't know anything about this priest. We don't have real high hopes for him since he's from Israel. And yet he's to teach them the fear of Yahweh. Just like the priest of Israel. And then most fascinating, verse 34, just glance there. 
I wrestled with this. Speaking of the nations, it says to this day, they do according to their earlier customs. They do not fear Yahweh, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments, which Yahweh commanded the sons of Jacob. He calls them their commandments. They're responsible in some way for the covenant. So they are in some way taking up the covenant life of Israel and they look exactly like Israel. So here's, here's the reflection. Like Israel, these nations fail to follow the covenant, the ordinances, the commandments, and fail to fear Yahweh alone. They fail just like Israel failed. The same way. They fail to follow the covenant and they fail to fear Yahweh alone. They resemble Israel. There's high places. In fact, they're using the same high places that Israel built. They just put new gods in them. So there's the high places. They appoint their own priest over the high priest. That's exactly what Israel did. Appointed their own priest. That's what they do. And there's this mix of worship, this syncretistic worship. They worship their gods and they fear Yahweh. That's exactly what Israel did. For the most of Israel's history, it's not that they left the worship of Yahweh in some sense, but they just worshiped other gods along with Yahweh. So they look just like Israel. So what you have at the end of this chapter is a reverse conquest. <laughs> the land is back in some ways to its pre-conquest state, full of idolaters shrines here and that's tragic so we've come full circle up north with the nation of israel remember before israel possessed this promised land the nations did we call them the canaanites and all those different ites that existed in that land and god waited until their iniquity was full and then he said i'm removing them because of their abominations including sacrificing children in the fire, these abominable practices, Lord, Lord said, I'm removing them. So he did that through Israel. They conquered. And now Israel has become like the nations that they conquered. And so God says, I'm removing you. And now the nations have become like Israel. We've come full circle. Israel-like nations. Here's three takeaways, three implications from this text here. Three, three things to get. One, the failure of Israel's mission. The failure of Israel's mission. No distinction between Israel and the nations displays a tragic failure in the purpose of Israel's election, of God forming them as a nation. Remember, God chose them not because they were greater than any other nation, but for his people. To represent him, his holy nation. How did they fail? Israel failed as a, quote, light to the nations and as a means of salvation blessing to the nations. They failed in their mission, we would say. Now, when I use the word mission here, I'm not thinking New Testament sense of going to the nations. Israel was never to go to the nations. No, they were separate from the nations. Theirs wasn't a going and telling here, but through their covenant obedience 
and their exclusive worship to Yahweh, they were to be a distinct people, a holy nation. And as such, a light to the nations. Yes, in a limited way, but still a light to the nations of the truth of God, Yahweh. Now, in fact, we had a little picture of that in the book of Kings. Do you remember? Under Solomon. Solomon was the height, the height of Israel, the glory days of Israel, the expansion of the kingdom, this wise king Solomon. And remember it said that the nation, that men came from all the nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Then we have that most famous example of the Queen of Sheba. She had heard that report. She had to come and see it for herself, and she did. And she was amazed. Remember, it took her breath away what she saw. The nation. So there was a brief glimpse of that, but since then it's plunged into idolatry, and they have become like the nations. Hmm. So they fail in that mission. Remember, God's design for the nations has been all along included in his promise to Abraham. When he formed Israel, he took Abraham and he gave him that promise. Part of the promise was, but all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. Through your seed, salvation blessing comes to the nations. This has been God's design, right? From the beginning, not just Israel, but Israel is a light to the nations. Through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is God's design. One of our adult Sunday school classes that's happening right now that uh, just give a plug for if you're not there, if you're not in Sunday school, this is a good one. It's entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a study of missions. But that title, Let the Nations Be Glad, kind of the theme verse of that class comes from Psalm 67. The Psalm, the Old Testament, Israel's expression their desire. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations worship Yahweh. In fact, that psalm ends by saying, God, our God, blesses us, Israel, that all the earth might fear him. So this is part of God's design. And yet, what a failure. And in that failure, we see again what I highlighted last Sunday, if you were here, the inadequacy of the law, the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant they're under to be a holy nation, but we see its inadequacy. The covenant, the law covenant, the Mosaic, will not be the means of salvation blessing to the nation. That won't be it. It's a fail. They fail under it. Remember, that covenant simply assigns them to sin. And now we learn it assigns the nations also are assigned to sin. And guilt and idolatry. So the question in our mind as we read these chapters is, how will this promise to Abraham come to pass? How will the seed of Abraham be the blessing to the nations, a light to the nations? But once again, that's where this story is going. It's not through the old covenant. It's not specifically through the nation of Israel in the land of Canaan. How does it come? Well, just to finish this point. The salvation of the nations comes only through God's son, King Jesus. That's how it comes. That's where the story's going. Things are not off track, by the way. God is not scratching his head saying, well, plan A didn't work. Is there a plan B? 
No, this is plan A, right? He's, the law came to demonstrate what our slavery to sin, futility. His plan is his son. He is the seed of Abraham. So when Paul, reflecting in the book of Galatians, looks back at this promise, he sees very insightfully, he reads that promise given to Abraham that through your seed, all the nations shall be blessed, including us. He makes this helpful comment. He says, he didn't say and to seeds as to many, but to seed one, that is to Christ. Through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then he reflects that the law, the Mosaic covenant came in a period of history. Why? To assign people to sin until Christ comes here. That's how it comes to pass. God's plan of rescuing the nations is through his son, Jesus, the seed of Abraham. And it's when his son comes, God in the flesh, to accomplish our redemption, to remove the covenant curse, that God's plan for rescuing the nations is unleashed. Did you know that? There's a great turn in redemptive history with the coming of Jesus. And now we have the Great Commission. Israel didn't have a great commission. Their mission was be faithful to the covenant in the land and you'll be a light to the nations. But our mission is go and tell. Go and proclaim. Go and make disciples of all the, excuse me, all the nations. Go. That's our mission today. That's how it's fulfilled. Now, if there's any principle here for us, we, we as a people, are a light to the nations. God uses that very language in the New Testament. And we will only be so insofar as we are a distinct people in belief and behavior, not conformed to this culture. We don't want to make this mistake Israel did of looking just like the nations, not being a light. Yes, our mission is different in that we go to the nations, but still we represent King Jesus. And we are to be a distinct people in belief and behavior, a holy nation. In fact, Peter uses those very words of us, speaking now not of Israel, but he's speaking of us, the church, he says, you, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a holy nation in this sense, distinct. You know what he says next? Or to proclaim his excellencies. You know what he goes on to say? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the nations, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's a distinction in us, not just a conformity to the culture. So, There's a second takeaway from this chapter. Number two, the danger of syncretism. The danger of syncretism. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, syncretism, it just means mixing things, mixing 
other gods, other beliefs, other forms with the worship of Yahweh. Blending them, you could say. The danger of blending, the danger of mixing, syncretism in worship. Now that was the hallmark of Israel's worship. And it's the hallmark of these nations. That's what stands out to you. One of the things as you read this, right? And you left scratching your head. What do you mean? They feared Yahweh and served their other gods? How are we to think of that? Look at verse 33 and verse 41. It says it so clearly. They feared Yahweh and served their own gods according to the customs of the nations. Verse 41. So while these nations feared Yahweh, they also served their idols. Really? This is syncretism. This is the blending of worship of Yahweh with other beliefs, other forms, other practices, other gods. Now, the key phrase through this chapter is that phrase, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. Eleven times he uses the fear of the Lord. He wants us to think, what does that mean? How is that being used? In the first sense, fear of the Lord is one of the words used for worship. If you're going to describe someone's word, they fear that God. They fear the fear of Yahweh is a word for worship. So when it says that these nations were fearing Yahweh, in one sense, it's speaking to their form of worship. They are, in some way, trying to worship Yahweh. Now, he may be using that tongue-in-cheek or with air quotes like we do, fear of Yahweh, but probably there's some sense in which they were sincere in their God-fearing. They were God-fearing of all their gods, including Yahweh. They were sincere in their religious practices, including the worship of Yahweh. But how does the Lord think of that? This is where we need the author's evaluation. Did you see it in verse 34? It just jumps off to you because he's been saying, fear the Lord. They feared the Lord. They feared Yahweh. They feared Yahweh. And then it comes to the evaluation. Do you see it in verse 34? To this day, they do according to their earlier customs. They do not fear Yahweh. Now, that's not a blatant contradiction, like the author forgot what he just wrote two verses earlier. He's giving an evaluation. That kind of fear that they had up there, mixed in with other gods, that is not fearing Yahweh. That is not worship. Though it's called that, they did not fear Yahweh. They did not worship Him. Because he's the only God. He cannot be worshipped alongside of other gods. That is definitional to not worshipping him. Regardless of what they think. Regardless of how sincere they are. And whatever form of Yahweh worship they're using. It is not fearing or worshipping Yahweh. Because it's mixed with the worship of other gods. What's the danger of syncretism? Mixing the worship of God with other forms and beliefs distorts a true knowledge of God. The danger of syncretism is that it is not worship. It's not. It distorts the truth of God. Again, it's not a matter of how sincerely they held their convictions or sincerely they practiced their religion. It's not worship. 
That's the danger of syncretism, this blending, because ultimately it's not worship, it's false worship, it's a form of idolatry, and it distorts who God is. God was so clear. You'll have no other gods before me, and don't make any images. The minute you make an image, you distort who I am, and you're worshiping an idol, a false, literally an idol. Now, we see this done all the time. Right, we have many who are spiritual. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Heard that phrase? Meaning I, I have some kind of belief in higher beings, power, spirit. I, I like to mix religion. You know, I take a little bit from Christianity. I like some of the teachings of Jesus and some of what Buddha had to say and some of our Native American religion and some of, you know, we just, we kind of mix it together and I have my spirituality. That's syncretism. That's not worship. We combine Christianity with pagan beliefs. Oh, our brothers and sisters on mission fields in frontier places face this all the time. People coming out of just real pagan kind of backgrounds, worshiping ancestors and different forms of idolatry, want to combine it. Yes, we believe in Jesus and so dangerous. We have that right here in our backyard with the Pueblo people and this mix of, of kind of Native American religion and Catholicism. It's syncretism. Today, one of the, I think, present dangers of this on the mission field is in Muslim communities and what is called the insider movement. If you're familiar with that, the insider movement where a so-called gospel being proclaimed that uh, you don't have to stop being Muslim. When you stay in the mosque, you can go through those rituals, call God Allah, and believe in Jesus. It's not the gospel. That's syncretism, and it's not worship. What's behind this kind of desire to uh, mix in these religions? What's, what's part of this pagan worship here? And you see it so clearly in this text. It's a desire to domesticate God, to control God, to invent your own God that you control. Right? We need to get rid of the lions. <laughs> They're killing us. What do we do to appease this God? That's so much of religion is just that. What do I do to get rid What do I do to appease this God? What do I need to do to make it rain? For crops to grow, to have healthy children, right? Just these forms of kind of pagan thought that creep in. Desire to control God instead of submit to God as he's revealed himself. Dale Davis, commentator, pastor, commentator on Kings, said it like this. I'll just leave you with this quote. Pagan religion creates what it likes. Biblical faith receives what is revealed. It's a great distinction. All religion, pagan religion, call it what you like, the nations, religions, other religions, creates what it likes. We fashion God in our own image according to what we think. The biblical faith receives what God has revealed, period. We submit to what he's revealed. We don't fashion him in the way we want. 
So that's a challenge to all of us because we are, as I said last week, at heart we're idolaters. Syncretism is always nearby, easily. We want to conform God to pagan notions. When we say things like, well, well, my God wouldn't do that, X, Y, Z. Well, I don't believe in a God that would do, etc. We're, we're in danger of this, conforming God to our image, inventing our own God. Biblical faith, what we're called to over and over is to receive what God has revealed and nothing else. Receive what he's revealed. That's why we, we make a big deal about this book, the Bible. That's why we, we don't apologize every Sunday. We just come and we, we open this book and we stay because this is the word of God. This is what he's revealed about himself. We don't want any other view of God than what he has made known. So we give ourselves to understand. Do you give yourself to understand. Be on guard against pagan notions and your own imaginations about God and syncretism. Now it leads me right to the third, last, last takeaway implication, the demand of exclusive worship. The demand of exclusive worship. The author here evaluates the nation's syncretism, that is fearing God and all these other idols, as not fearing Yahweh precisely because the only true worship of Yahweh is exclusive devotion. And that's because he alone is God. All other gods are false. They're idols. They're a lie. They're vapor. And so to claim to, as I said, to worship Yahweh and other gods or mixing of other gods is not a worship of Yahweh. Yahweh worship is exclusive by definition. Because he alone is God. So what the author does there, if you look back at the text, verses 35 and following, he he gives a flashback to the Mosaic Covenant. When he first instituted the covenant, he reminds them, and he does it in the second person here. So I'm just telling you, it's like a direct address. Do you see it there in verse 35? Mentioning Israel, whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them. And now, second person, you shall not fear other gods nor bow down yourselves down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, to him you shall bow yourselves down, to him you shall sacrifice, and the statutes and the ordinances of the law and the commandments which he wrote, you shall observe to do forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant which I made with you, you shall not forget, and you shall not fear other gods. But, uh, but Yahweh your God you shall fear. You hear it? Three times. You shall not fear other gods. He takes them back to this very covenant. This is right at the heart, right at the centerpiece of the covenant. What's the first commandment of the ten? Right? I'm the Lord your God. You shall what? Have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. It's an exclusive demand for exclusive worship. You shall not make an image of anything, any likeness. Exclusivity is the heart of the covenant. Note this. In contrast to all pagan religions, Yahweh alone demanded exclusive devotion. I I want you to be really impressed with this. Because we're kind of used to this as we read the Bible. This was utterly unique and really inexplicable. All other religions, ancient Near Eastern religions, 
You read of all these different gods they had. We've read of Baal and Asherah. All those religions, they worshipped many gods. They had a pantheon of gods, right? Many gods. Not one of those gods demanded exclusive worship. It was unheard of. It was unthinkable. It wasn't even a category in ancient Near Eastern mindset. That would have been nonsense. So when these people come into the land of Canaan, they have that very localized view of a deity, like that's what they've always had. These gods rule over these areas, so we have to make sure when we're in this area we appease these gods, and these gods control rain, and these gods control this, and fertility, and, and we have our and we make sure. So when they come into the land and lions start killing them, remarkably they conclude, oh, I think the god of this land is mad at us right now. Give them credit. That's more than Israel did. Isn't it? At least they did that. But then they so so then they said, well, we just got to know how to worship this God and then it'll be okay. They had no problem adding Yahweh onto their other gods. That was all of religion at the time. All of it. None of these were calling for exclusive devotion or claiming to be the only God. So how do you explain the uniqueness of Israel in their monotheism in the demand for exclusive worship. Some of you have heard me tell the story when I was um, in college and I took a Western civilization class from a community college because it was a lot cheaper, so I took that. And the teacher, we were studying Western civilizations and how they developed. And I remember the teacher making this comment, and I think it was in the book too, that all civilizations began as polytheist. All of them were polytheist. Now, that's interesting on one side because it shows the nature of idolatry that's universal, right? But we're also studying the Hebrew culture. They were one of the civilizations. So I raised my hand. I said, and what about the Hebrew culture? Like, Abraham and Moses, remember, developed. Oh, yeah, well, we know that they were polytheists, too. <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> well, they had to be, because all cultures were polytheist. I said, well, I happen to have a Bible in the class and opened to Exodus 20 and read, you shall have no other gods before me. There's no God. Well, 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 we, we know, of course, we, we can't believe that. We know that that's, you know, that, that, by, that came from lots of traditions. And over many, 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 many centuries, Israel finally came to a monotheistic belief. That's what you have to do because you can't explain it. There's one explanation. That's what God revealed. The true God. I just give that to you as an apologetic for the truthfulness. There, there's just nothing else like it. Oh, since then, yes, there have been those who have mimicked the Judeo-Christian heritage of monotheism, but not here. Huh. God calls for exclusive worship. Now, let me return to that question I started with. How do you, how do you feel about that demand? <laughs> Is God so insecure, so needy, or so selfish that he demands this kind of praise and worship and to the exclusion of anything else. Is he the ultimate egotist? 
the megalomaniac, as Dawkins calls him. Now, I wish we could take a long time to answer that question. If you want a really thorough answer, one of my, one of the joys of my sabbatical was reading a lot, but I got to reread from many years ago. I read, but I got to reread it again. Jonathan Edwards' treatise, "The End for Which God Created the World," and he takes up these objections. And I can't give all what he gives here, but just to say this. <laughs> The fact that he is God alone should answer the question. He is the most valuable being in the universe. It is utterly right and absolutely righteous of him to exalt himself because there's no other gods. He alone is true. He exalts himself as the one alone who is true, who made us. He's not a narcissist. He's not just another human being looking for compliments. He is God alone and supremely valuable. And Edwards goes on to explain this in, in great detail. He exalts himself and calls for our exclusive worship, not to our detriment. Not because he's petty and he needs some building up. He doesn't need anything. But to our greatest good. It is for our greatest good that we worship him exclusively as the most valuable and excellent being in all the universe. Our greatest and most satisfying enjoyment and fulfillment is in knowing him. You believe that? That's what you're made for. It's why you exist. Is to adore him, to know him. And so it is ultimately good. It's Loving of God to call for exclusive allegiance. It's loving for God to exalt himself. He would not be good if he didn't. I quoted that from C.S. Lewis earlier about his struggle with this very issue. And he did become a Christian, as you know. And he saw things differently. And he, he says this. This is how he says it. This is his version. He says, my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed consummation. We overflow. <laughs> when we value something, we praise it. And how much more infinitely true of God. So, lots to answer there. Let me close with this as we fast forward to today. Because this demand for exclusive worship is right at the heart of our covenant, new covenant. But how is it expressed today? The worship of God today is only through the confession that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the Son, is the Savior and Lord. There is no other form of worship of God today except through Jesus. The exclusive demand and the gracious summons to worship God through Christ, the Son. God has revealed himself supremely, mostly in the Son relationship to 
this God, the true God, the creator, is only through Jesus Christ. We confess him as Lord and we confess him as Savior. There is no true knowledge or relationship or worship of God except in Jesus. Again, it will not do for people to say, well, yeah, I, I, I believe in God. I have a view of God. Again, that's just a, but has nothing to do with Jesus. It's just another form of idolatry, another false fear of God that's not real. So do you know him in Christ this morning? Do you fear God alone in Christ? And by fear, that's the word that's used all through here. It is that sense of awe. Awesome in the way we should use it, of God only, of reverence, of adoration, of delight as your supreme value in Christ. Do you know him alone? He calls you to it. It's what you're made through. And you come through faith in Jesus this morning and through him alone. And you can know God as your father. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Father, help us to delight alone in you through Jesus. There's no other gods. Be our supreme value, our supreme desire, our greatest satisfaction and delight. Wean us from other loves and other affections that would replace you. Thank you for making a way that we might worship and know you. We do worship you through Jesus, your son.